Hey, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. Fun counter guy. Thanks for stopping by. Mr. Stephen Scott is back by the woodpile to talk about his long career in the arts, this time speaking specifically about his move from England to sunny California in the late 1970s and early 1980s. We get to hear about his encounters with such legends as Larry Norman, Mark Hurd, Keith Green, Lewis and Mary Neely, Charlie Peacock, Mike Rowe, and the 77s, in addition to given some insight into the recordings of a few of his own compositions. So in a similar way, as happened in England with you, where you end up being at the, the center of this birth of a, of a movement. On the fringes of the birth of a movement. Well, yeah. Okay. You ended up in a similar situation, I perceive it to be, in California, in the, I guess, the Sacramento area or yep. thereabouts. And from what I understand, and you can correct me, it was all centered around this church kind of um, project called The Warehouse. So if you don't mind talking about how you ended up there, and again, did you realize at the time that it would be as monumental, at least to... Uh, American Christians that were into uh, some of the art that came out of that at the time? I had no idea. What happened was I finished art school with the possibility of coming to America and making a record there on my horizon. And I thought, wow, that's great, because I had all this stuff in my head from my art school experience that I wanted to explore further but i didn't know how i was going to make a you know what was i going to do how was i going to make a living what was my day job what did i want to make art about what did i truly believe what was all this what was all this stuff and so this this providential incursion via the generosities of randy stonehill and the generosities of of the late larry norman and the, the people i got to meet when I came out initially to Southern California, you know, I, I go to Southern California and here I am. Uh, it's a whole other life. I'm going to be making this record and I will be a Christian rock musician by day. And I will go and go to galleries and bookstores and avant-garde poetry readings and experimental film screenings and all the good stuff at night or on weekends or whatever. These two threads interweave and hopefully some of the art damage that I was familiar with would seep through into what I was doing as a singer, a songwriter. This was a good place to start. So I went and started with uh, Solid Rock Records and I was living in Southern California. I was in the spare room at Randy Stonehill's house, which I turned into a swamp. And um, how is that? The room fell into disarray quite quickly under my care. <laughs> Let's put it like that. Okay. But you didn't leave the water running or something. No, nothing. Not a literal swamp. Okay. Anyway, so I, I was there. There was a church we were going to, pastored by a guy called Ken Gullickson. This church was called the Vineyard. My understanding is, is that it was under Gullickson's shepherding. It was a. Um, it's like pre-John Wimber an affiliate or a branch of the Calvary Chapel movement. We go there, I thought I thought uh, Gullickson was great, great pastor, great teacher. So here we are in Southern California, Woodland Hills, about three miles or so, so it seems now, down the road, there's this guy called Keith Green. And you were deep branch. You love to get you through it if you give them a chance. Just keep doing your best. Pray that it's blessed. Jesus takes care of the We go down to his house a few times and hang out with him and 
his approach to music, his intentional living um, as a Christian, and the people he was taking in and working with and going to his concerts and go to Larry Norman concerts, Randy Stonehill concerts, and go into the studio to see and listen to and watch the completion of like a Tom Howard project. It turned out just as I had planned. It stood so tall and looked so grand on the outside. Or see the basic tracks being laid for a Mark Hurd Appalachian Melody album. Desperation's lonely aching kills the smile that you've been faking. I can feel your and eventually start to lay tracks for a Steve Scott project uh, to be called uh, Moving Pictures. And we got pretty close to a point where you'd have to mix and be done with it. Um, and I'm not sure of all the... I mean, I, I know what happened from my perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the more I dig in, there are all kinds of other providential factors that may have cast a shadow of doom over that project as a released album. Business choices and things like that. Um, I don't. I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying an individual's business choices. I'm just saying maybe you know, a large distributor or a label or what you're saying, well, I'm not sure about this or something like that. There are many factors that contributed to what happened next. But what happened next was this. I decided to walk away from the project that may or may not have even ever come out anyway. But I was just so somewhat unraveled by what was going on with Solid Rock and the family that Solid Rock was. I am in no way apportioning any kind of blame or alluding to the complex, you know, I I will allude in the most generic terms Mm -hmm. to it as a complex situation that I felt I needed to walk away from. So I did. Because backing up providentially, stepping back onto the Beijing subway, Randy Stonehill had been booked to go to a concert in Sacramento. He took me with him. This was a concert for a church called Warehouse Ministries. They did this concert. I got into conversation with the pastoral leadership, Lewis and Mary Neely. They were voicing this great interest in using the arts exploring the arts, both because they're, I'm going to put this in crass terms, the demographic of the church was largely counterculture. You know, lots of alternate hippie, whatever types coming in and converting to faith uh, under Lewis's preaching or in the Bible study that Mary taught and growing in faith and wanting to be to connect with their contemporaries in culturally relevant ways. So Lewis and Mary Neely began to talk about a vision for the arts, both in terms of cultural engagement and also in terms of redeemed and restored creativity. And I thought, this is a great conversation. Wow, isn't it a shame I live in Southern California um, and they're up here in Sacramento, Northern California. When things began to get too complicated for me to handle in the Southern California end of things. I gravitated towards Northern California and we began a conversation about what would it be like to move up to Northern California, which is what I did. I ended up moving up there. Uh, I will stress at this point with Larry and Randy and Tom Howard and all those guys that in spite of my the choices I was making at a vocational or a location or a business level or whatever, that no personal bridges were particularly set fire to. Mm-hmm. Meaning I didn't run out of there screaming uh, all kinds of hostilities over my shoulder. You know, I talked to Larry later. 
on and off conversation with Randy Stonehill and, and stuff like that, is that for all the strangeness that is associated with Solid Rock and whatever came out of it and Larry and, and, and all those kinds of relationships and things like that, I never wanted to be part of that mythology. And therefore, I was never interested in saying bad things about my experience. Am I out of place? Maybe blowing my lines. You know what I'm trying to say. So I moved to Northern California under the pastoral guidance of Lewis and Mary Neely, who had this growing church called Warehouse Ministries. And they put together um, initially a, a kind of a mixed media arts interest group a production thing called Songray Productions, which did everything from staging mixed media drama around events like Easter to putting out a record called Come Back Soon <laughs> with uh, my song Come Back Soon as the title track. Why did you ever have to So you had all these artists, like painters, cartoonists, animators, dancers, um, theater majors, tons of musicians, Tom Goodlunas, Jim Abag. If you watch the coronavirus videos put out by Mezzo Music, the Mezzo Music channel on, on YouTube, you can dive into interviews with Mike Rowe and Steve Griffith and all those guys mm -hmm. and get deep history about how some of them came up from the Bay Area, came from San Jose, and got aboard this, this Beijing subway, which was Warehouse Ministries' interest in the arts. People came in from all over the place and also people who had converted locally coming to faith on a local basis and we're looking for ways of being creatively expressive of the newfound faith or finding culturally engaging ways of expressing their faith. Songray Productions eventually focused in uh, on this record label emerged called Exit Records in the early 1980s. And um, there are a number of artists on that record label. There's Tom Goodlunas and Panacea. Eventually, First Strike, uh, kind of a hard rock band, was on there. The ones that people seem to most readily uh, access from the exit days are the 77s, which was Mike Rowe and Mark Tootle and Mark Proctor initially on drums and Janerick Vols on bass. Vector, which emerged from uh, Jim Abag was playing with Steve Griffith and I think Bruce Spencer, who now drums with uh, the 77s. I'm confused as to my, my drummer timelines at this point. <laughs> But the 77 that began as the Scratch Band under Mike Mike Rowe, Sharon McCall, uh, Jan Eric, uh, Mark Tootle on keyboards, Mark Proctor on drums, and they were doing some of my songs because they didn't have that much material, and providentially speaking, some songs were. I was handing out cassettes of unfinished stuff from the moving picture sessions saying, you know, here's a court sheet, learn this or whatever, whatever the process was. Some of the songs got their, got their airing via the scratch band. Oh, 
and then the scratch band kind of morphed into the 77s and they did an album ping pong over the abyss with a song different kind of light on it which was originally cut for i'd cut that for uh the moving pictures album so they did that and then vector did an album and then one of the the people in vector a guy called charlie peacock stepped away from vector and stepped into uh like a solo recording project and carried on from there i mean charlie's got his like his own rich history prior to his warehouse involvement of uh, like his artistic and musical background and his like his local and regional experience as a performer and as an arranger and as a composer. So it had a tremendous boon to have someone like Charlie around at Exit for his musical chops and his musical understanding. Uh, Mike Rose, phenomenal guitar player. Uh, Steve Griffith, uh, only last week, I was watching an interview with Steve Griffith on YouTube and the interviewer said, you know, you probably got one of the best voices of the entire Exit Records roster. And yeah, Griffith's a great, vocalist, singer, uh, writer and bass player and drummer and things like that. So Exit had all these people that somewhat analogous to, but very different to as well, my end of 60s, beginning of 70s experience with all those, the Steve Fernies, the Steve Rousey, the Beth Sage, the Nigel Goodwin, uh, Steve Turner and the Norman Stones of this world, that, that group coming together and having one kind of impact on the church and the larger culture. Then what was happening through Sangre and then Exit and all the artists that were involved with Exit was like stepping into that conversation again, but it was a very different kind of church and culture conversation because it was very much situated within the the somewhat emergent Jesus movement, uh, the Calvary chapels, and of course, other Jesus movement phenomenon Stepping back onto the Beijing subway, the Palisari shepherded Jesus family in Norwood, some of that came back to the US of A and I think split in two different directions. And one went into, and I think I could be mistaken about this, Oregon and formed the Highway Missionaries. There was a band that came out of that called Servant. Another contingent of this original Jesus family, or at least within the vision of that original, went to Chicago and formed Jesus People USA. Mm-hmm. And the Res Band and all the other bands and the Cornerstone Festival, which ended up becoming its own contributor to the church and culture conversation not only by putting on like phenomenal shows with Steve Taylor, Sixpence None the Richer, 77s, Vector, and a host of others, but also by making space for um, seminar tents and like the Imaginarium, where they would look at Christianity and popular culture, and Art Rageous, where under Bruce Bitmead's uh, sagacious leadership, people would come together and exhibit art and or read papers and or lead discussions about creativity, culture, kingdom, and personal conviction. So out of that thread that came out of the Palisari-driven Jesus family in Norwood, you have this entire uh, Midwest rock experience, which ends up becoming a, a catalytic factor for many people that point back to Cornerstone as a kind of a turning point for them culturally. And I think lives on in something called audio feed, which came into being once Cornerstone was no longer able to carry on doing the festivals. Mm -hmm. So all those tangled threads, and of course the Res Band came and played at Warehouse a few times. And um, 
exit bands went to play at Cornerstone, and I, I got a chance to go do some seminars in the Outrageous Tent and some spoken word performances, which were based off the spoken word performances I'd done in the Netherlands, care of Isaac and Marie Slugged, who'd met me at Greenbelt when I was at Greenbelt promoting a book called Crying for a Vision back in the early 90s that had been published by Rupert Lloydell and Stride Books. So all these threads are kind of tangled. Hopefully you can see how this Beijing subway metaphor starts to <laughs> starts to kind of play in to what I'm describing as an unfolding experience. Anyway, so back to the warehouse. Yeah, that's what came out. We, you know, we did Bible studies. We looked at the arts in the concerts, and people came out of that experience and that encounter, out of that teaching, and should we say, out of that permission, into their own various trajectories of flourishing if I can put it like that. Some moved, you know, far afield. I mean, Jim Abeg and Charlie Peacock moved to Nashville and made their, made and are making their impact on the arts there. Others moved to other places. Some stayed in the Sacramento or the Northern California area. But the 77s, Vector, Charlie Peacock, First Strike, all those bands had tremendous impact uh, in what they were doing, what they are doing, way above and beyond anything that I think we could imagine with this caveat. I was in a prayer meeting on the premises of Warehouse Christian Ministries, Warehouse Ministries in the late 1970s. And we were praying for Sangre and stuff had not gotten started as yet. Things were just like bubbling up and mm -hmm. people were just trying to do things, play concerts, maybe put together a dance thing or whatever. We were praying for it. And someone spoke out in the prayer meeting, giving what they were certain was a, a word of insight. And they spoke in terms of seeing the impact of what was, what was starting to happen here at Sangre, reaching all over the globe, being able to be seen or having some kind of influence at a global level. So at the time, you kind of think, great, we're all going to be like rich rock stars for Jesus. <laughs> and, you know, limo everywhere and jet to places like Singapore and play concerts for thousands of screaming fans who become Christians at the end of the concert, uh, <laughs> things like that. I mean, one can hope, right? All right. But I mean, <laughs> I, uh, that has always stuck with me because I've seen that come to pass in so many different ways none of which have made any of us rich and famous. When that guy spoke that insight out, the technology might have existed, but it did not exist as like a broad social cultural thing where anywhere in the world with a smartphone and a Wi-Fi signal, I can watch a Charlie Peacock video. I was talking to Mike Rowe the other day and I reminded him that I was in Chiang Mai in Northern Thailand when he and I were literally messaging back and forth on my laptop about possible lyrical thoughts and ideas for a future 77s project. So the, the, the actual communications infrastructure and technology that made that guy's word of insight a global possibility was not even a twinkling in our eyes, not even part of the conversation yet when that guy spoke out. But now, you know, I can go to Cambodia, uh, I can watch, I can listen to Steve Griffith on my computer, mm -hmm. so long as I can get a Wi-Fi signal. But you go back to Exit Records, jumping back via the Beijing subway, Charlie did some producing for Exit Records, but some of our first producers were from a band who came up and did concerts regularly at the warehouse. There's a band called the Alpha Band. And 
that act consisted of this tall guy called T-Bone Burnett, <laughs> David Mansfield on mandolin and violin, and uh, Stephen Souls. Stephen Souls ended up doing a lot of early production work for Exit Records. So there's that kind of connection as well. It is very, very hard to try and imagine being, but it's very important to imagine being there. It's very important for people that were and are involved with that to just remember where you came from. Mm. Remember the narrative, not in terms of you being a special person, in terms of you being incredibly blessed to have that kind of providential narrative trail. Whenever you think, oh, what have I done? You just have to look over your shoulder and see how God in his kindness and his sense of humor mm-hmm. managed to steer you providentially through different conversations that have had some impact or some bearing on the larger culture. And there was something I was going to say. Oh, right. Jumping back. I'd met this guy, Steve Turner, in late 60s, early 70s. He introduced me to Randy Stonehill. This was in England. He was around solid rock in the mid 70s when I was there because A, he was like total buds with Larry and B, he was gathering material for a biography of Larry Norman that um, I think is still gathering dust somewhere. All that's to say, Steve Turner came up to Sacramento at one point, once I'd been like, I got myself situated and he met Lewis and Mary Neely and Steve Turner got into conversation with Lewis and Mary Neely about the cultural work they were trying to do. And this manifest itself in Steve Turner, the poet, of course, reading some of his poems for the church, but also Steve Turner, the rock journalist, doing significant work for a radio show that Mary Neely and others were producing at the time. Mike Rowe was involved at one point, initially called Rock and Religion. You're listening to Rock and Religion, and this week we will be featuring a live concert recording of the Scratch Band. Our attention was drawn to the Scratch Band after learning of their notoriety from successful concerts in high schools and colleges across Northern California. Although much of the band's presentation is likened to the brash new wave sound, their message overall is entirely different. Eventually it became Rock Scope, and Steve Turner made significant contribution through like a multi-episode series on the sort of the underlying architecture of popular culture viewed through implicitly Christian lens or lenses. So Steve wrote from his expertise as a rock journalist and his faith grounding as a Christian, and he spoke into the development and the growth of that radio show. And that eventually, uh, I know for Steve, he took some of the material and turned it into a book called Hungry for Heaven. So all this to say, to talk in terms of tangled providentialities, seeing manifestations where seeing stuff, seeds planted and seeds flourish out there at the Cornerstone Festival in the Midwest, having people go off to Nashville and do their thing there and flourish there and impact the community there. All these threads, some of which I'm part of, some of which I just got uh, to observe, have allowed this conversation about, you know, redeeming one's creativity and appropriately engaging culture. That conversation to travel from England to America, and in my cases, to Southeast Asia and Eastern Europe. I thought I felt the start of a new beginning When I saw your footprints in the sand I heard you speak my name when you were talking When you started recording music, or at least the first uh, recordings of you that I heard that were not spoken word, you know, they were in the new wave 80 style, which of course that was the time period which you were recording. Did you personally have an affinity for that style of music or the, the punk scene before that? The very first song I ever wrote was in France in 1972. 
when I was on a mission trip and I'd borrowed a guitar and um, I was at that time I was very much into both traditional and contemporary folk music and the song I wrote had a very sort of minor key a bit modal in places melancholy chord structure and very sparse but simple lyrics the song was called farthest star and that became one of the first songs that uh larry and randy heard and that was going to be a song on the moving pictures album that i recorded for larry uh, a live version of that song did end up on an album called Mag Magnificent Obsession. Just like the restless tide Washing up on every beach The truth is always just out of reach But most of the Moving Pictures album was characterized by a sort of a minor key, melancholy, folky, singer-songwriter pop approach. By the time I got round to material like Love in the Western World in the 1981 or so, you'd be lis listening to lots of different kinds of music. And I was still fascinated by that earlier, more ethereal singer-songwriter approach, but I was also fascinated by, you know, I, you know I, had, I had two or three distinct kind of like ribbons of musical taste moving through me. I mean, I liked the traditional and the contemporary folk music and the singer-songwriter stuff. I also, out of my art school experience, had, had gotten something of a taste for the really edgy, kind of art rock, and I don't mean prog rock, but I mean the sort of the, the noise, the damage, the industrial art rock, proto-punk rock that was uh, emerging in England in the early 1970s. Uh, there's pub rock and uh, other forms of rock that were much more straightforward and straight ahead and were the, the kind of the spiritual parents of what became punk rock in the mid 70s but i was i was very interested because i've been exposed to certain kinds of singer songwriter type material but i'd also been exposed to experimental poetics and performance that kind of leaned over into experiments with the rock format but usually much grungier and more hard edge like say the velvet underground yeah. bands like that as well as the, the more ethereal, incredible string band type stuff from the mid to late 60s on. And it's just that for the Love in the Western World album, the darker, crumblier, edgier, rocky stuff kind of took over. But a lot of it was um, a bit tongue in cheek, I have to say in terms of the form and there were there are there are songs on the love in the western world album things like safety and numbers that were a bit of a leaning back towards the more singer songwriter type things although once mike rowe got around it with electric guitar it became a whole other story um so yeah it's what we were listening to what i was listening to at the time and i'd been i had some long and some deep exposure to that more kind of bleeding edge stuff because it was all part of the art school atmosphere that you get exposed to all this stuff. So I was, uh, you know, a bit schizophrenic. The Moving Pictures album was very much singer-songwriter. The Love in the Western World album bounced very much off the, the kind of edgier art rock sensibilities that I had aspirations and pretensions towards. But it was all it was all me. It wasn't like I said, oh, man, I'm going to be a punk for, you know, I'm going to reach the kids. So I'm going to be a punk for Jesus kind of thing. Good grief. No, yeah. it was never that. It was always, well, you know, I'm familiar with um, Sean Phillips. I'm familiar with Bert Yanch. I'm familiar with John Renborn. Uh, but I'm also familiar with the Velvet Underground, or I'm also familiar with these bands like Television and suicide uh actually coming out of new york in the mid 70s i thought i know all this stuff and i just want to lean more into the 
you know, the edgier kind of stuff for this particular album. recording moving pictures there was a push to come up with stuff that balanced out these sort of the baroque pop songs like king for a day or pilots without parachutes or farthest star and they, they say well we need something a bit more you know like louder mm. uh, with more drums in it and things like that so i wrote different kind of light And there were, there were songs like, I Just Want to See My Name in Lights, which was just like middle ground, Bowie infatuation type stuff. And Permanent Revolution, which was a song I wrote in about eight minutes, I think, which was, we're talking about 1977, 1978. So it was intended to, to satirize in some ways the punk rock movement, which by, by that point was becoming like wallpaper. So I want to ask about a handful of my favorite songs of yours. Sure. So I'm curious about like lyrically and what you were trying to say with these songs and how they came about. So the my first and my favorite song is Touch. Well, I'm going to take the fifth on the inspiration for all the lyrics to all my songs because they involve like real situations. But uh, just a, a desire to form a friendship and or a relationship with someone and to communicate with them. And of course, you know, picking over my various failed attempts to communicate with uh, individuals and thinking there's got to be a better way, feeling somewhat weighed down by my failures to communicate, uh, keep running into brick walls or marching around these walls, believing, at least by the second verse, that there's there's got to be a way of building a bridge into some kind of friendship or relationship with uh, this particular individual. And of course, the chorus says, you know, when the words get in the way, reach out and touch, which of course I would never advocate, you know, I'm all for verbal communication and getting to know the person. Yeah, so, I didn't take it as a, you know, reach out and paw me. Right. So it, it was just, the song was about just frustration, frustration at communication and just wishing that, you know, in a, in a better world, there'd be trust and relationship and some sort of relatability and that all my stupid attempts to build bridges would be replaced by a good bridge. Mm -hmm. And all the walls that I had pretty much built around myself and around this situation would come falling down. Musically, I just came up with these four chords on a keyboard and then just this stinging guitar line that we got Mike Rowe to play that, you know, marries together stuff. It sounds like, you know, a bit of Yardbirds or whatever. It, um, it almost sounds like a bagpipe to me. Exactly. And that's on that song and also on Wall of Tears, Mike was able to accomplish a a bagpipe type feeling. In fact, on Wall of Tears, uh, somebody said that the guitar sounded like uh, the Irish pipes, Ulean, mm -hmm. Ulean pipes, yeah. which uh, is fascinating, very high compliment for a guitar player to get something that sounds close to, with the emotional range of the Ulean pipes. And so there's that song, and then of course the drums, the pounding, the layers and layers of tom-toms that uh, I, Mike Rowe and Steve Griffith were like, talking about this only the other day uh, in an interview mike's mezzo music channel on youtube uh it's just like overdubbing all these toms and coming up with this 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 layered 
jungle rhythm. And then on top of that, poor Charlie Peacock having to manually play this high repeating cycle of keyboard notes because this was like before the days that you'd actually like just do something once and then loop it. I mean, Charlie, bless him, was in there physically playing that keyboard part, uh, which was intended to go over the top of layers and layers of pounding jungle drums. Uh, because what I was going for in the song, uh, what I was going for in songs at that point was, you know, the lyrical content is one thing, but if you can come up with sounds that carry the something of the emotional content that you were alluding to lyrically, if you can do something which makes people feel, you know, viscerally what you were trying to talk about in the lyric, or hinting at or alluding to or echoing in the lyrics, if you can come up with tracks that actually do that work as well with the lyrics, then you've got something like a total statement. And I, I was getting that feeling from, there was a band out of Sheffield called the Compsat Angels that on their records, Waiting for a Miracle and Sleep No More and Fiction, the first three albums that I was aware of that I think were on Polydor. They had done this. They had wrapped Steve Fellow's vocal in drum sounds that were recorded in an elevator shaft, in guitar parts that sounded like that they were inversions or variations on a basic track, which had then been erased. So that all you've got are these kind of these harmonic patterns. And, and the bass line was like a completely different narrative. It was like, but it, it felt emotionally right for the song. So whatever Steve Fellows was singing was, would be pushed a little bit to the back of the mix and be reverbed. And he would sound very plaintive and lost lyrically. But the drums would back him up. And what the guitar did would back him up. And what the bass did, they all, they all seemed to carry the same narrative but in, in different, uh, different levels and in different frequencies. I was really impressed when I listened to the Comsat Angels that they were able to, to come up with like this, this total sonic picture of what the lyrics of the song seemed to be about. And it was usually about like, fellows sounded like he was lost, he was in despair, the relationship was hitting a wall, or he felt isolated or whatever. But he would sing, and invariably it was like a minor key thing, but whatever the drums did and the guitar did and the bass did and the keyboards did, they weren't anchors for the song. They were variations on, they were harmonic variations around the basic melody of the song. But the, you know, the drums weren't 4-4, four, four. the bass didn't hold down the root, the guitar didn't play 1-3-5 as a chord. Everything was like spun off, as it were, the actual content of the lyrics. such a way that it was harmonically appropriate, but it somehow underlined the emotional content of the lyrics. And I was, I was amazed. I was impressed by that a lot. Other bands may have done it, but for me, it was a Comsat Angels that I discovered doing that. And I just thought, that's the way to go. So when I began to think about tracks, things like Not A Pretty Picture or Touch or What Is The Mystery, that was something of the vision that I had in mind when I would make suggestions about production and things like that. I guess uh, every different person who listens to songs probably creates a theater of the mind. And I know of Touch, sure. uh, I think, again, because of the Mike Rose guitar sounding like a bagpipe to me, I just had this vision of, like, you know, some Scottish hermit or a shepherd, you know, seeing another human being on another hill or another mountain and just wanting to 
reach out, but just the distance or the hurt or, you know, whatever that was. That's ex- excellent. That's exactly what the song's all about. There you go. I think that's where we'll go with that from now on. Even now I see another world. Okay, so the next song I would like to know about, uh, Love in the Western World, of course. My assumption is it's a comment on what is called love in the Western world. I guess the, as you say, that when boy meets girl and that kind of, that giddiness that happens at the beginning of a lot of relationships. And I guess a lot of pop songs, they kind of end it right there, but they don't go further into what love could be. Am I right? The concept of love in the Western world, it, it's exactly right. Is that sort of that giddy infatuation, uh, the romantic love, and what happens when the fizzle goes and the, it's all flat, but <laughs> people just like chasing that fleeting feeling into, you know, like, kind of unwise relationships or one night stands or whatever mm-hmm. but the song were, and its title was anchored in a book by uh, Denis de Rougemont Swiss theologian who wrote a book called Love in the Western World which was an exploration of where the idea and he kind of pinpointed it in the the tradition of courtly love in the earlier eras, where the idea of romantic love and ideal partnerships came from historically. So he talked about it as having a particular social and historical reference point uh, in medieval times and traced it to like to now. So I thought, okay, love in, and love in the Western world was just this amazing title. And because a lot of what was going on on the Love in the Western World album was at some levels meant to be sincere and at other levels was meant to be a bit tongue in cheek. It was kind of a combination of sincerity and irony in what was being layered both lyrically and instrumentally on those songs. Taking the, a title of a book by a Swiss theologian and turning it into a pop song um, that, you know, borrows some chords from a British band called Human League and borrows some other chords from somewhere else and just throws them together and just kind of improvising lyrics in the shower kind of thing and seeing what I come up with. And then taking a vocal approach, they're kind of like nasal slightly whiny, needy-sounding vocal approach. As I stand in the mirror, I have to confess I see written right across these eyes, not known of this dress. Am I under construction or have I been condemned? I can't figure out the beginning or even see. If you hear that, then here's where I got it from. There was another band that I was really a big fan of in the day uh, called The Only Ones. The lead singer, I think, was Pete Parrott. And he had this vocal style that was this total kind of wannabe, no-hoper, hopeless romantic kind of guy. And I just thought, that's the, that's the vocal style that I need for this song. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to imitate him. I mean, I would distinguish like a Pete Parrott from a David Bowie. But I also distinguish a Pete Parrott from someone like Morrissey of the Smiths, who brought more irony to the way he approached singing his songs. I would listen to these guys and I would go, okay, I get what they're doing here. I mean, Morrissey is not Steve Fellows of the Comstock Angels, is not Pete Perrett of The Only Ones, is not David Bowie of Let's Dance. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've all, got, they've all got some kind of distinctive 
kind of uh, picture in mind when they take a vocal approach to a song. They're all very different. They're all right for the time, and they're all funny. And none of them are Ian Curtis of Joy Division. That's got its own kind of theater to it. And she turned around and took me by the hand and said I lost control again. And how I'll never know just why I understand. She said I lost control again. And she screamed out. But I mean, when I did when I did Love in the Western World, I was definitely thinking, oh yeah, the only ones. When I when I tried to at least in the first verse, when I wanted to try and do that, you know, sing like someone who was. You know, like a no-hoper, uh-huh. needy, uh, <laughs> romantic, a bit desperate, not sure if he's under construction or has he been condemned, you know, all mm-hmm. those kinds of things. We will press pause for the moment, but hopefully we'll pick back up soon to talk about more of Mr. Scott's songs, poetry, and his adventures around the world. In the meantime, if you haven't heard the previous interviews with the said man, you can find them on In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episodes 226 and 227. Also of a related note, we talked with 77's drummer Aaron Smith back on episodes 161 and 162. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. (laughs) 